0: If, if you you're, you're carry the caraway, just, just call Mitchell Tall. Or,
1: or in Patterson Lace, Tor. just call Tor. Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside,
0: Tor. just call Tor. Mitchell Tall. Buy a, a seven house, house,
1: just Tor. call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh yeah, real little real, real
0: estate. We want more.
1: I'm Ilana Raspash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country of the mighty Eastern Kulin Nations. I am broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Aboriginal land. My conversation partner this evening is Justine Clark, an architectural editor, writer, researcher, advisor and advocate. She is the co-founder and director of Parler Gender Equity Architecture. She leads the organization's advocacy and funding programs and established the Parler website, which she now edits with Susie Ashworth. Justine consults to built environment organisations, institutions and practices on policy, strategy publications, events and public engagement. Justine is active in public discussions of architecture. She has convened many events, curated exhibitions and sat on national and international juries. From 2000 to 2011, Justine worked on Architecture Australia and was editor of the journal for seven years. Her work has won awards for architecture in the media, and her broader contribution to the profession was recognised with the 2015 Marion Marney Prize and the 2019 President's Prize from the Australian Institute of Architects Victorian Chapter. Her writing appears in both the scholarly and professional press, and she has worked on topics including gender and architecture, architectural criticism, architectural drawing, and post-war modernism. She is co-author with Dr Paul Walker of the book Looking for the Local Architecture and the New Zealand As- Modern. Justine is an Honorary Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to the program, Justine. Uh, I shouldn't have given you that long bio. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> we, we love to hear her because... You're usually the one interviewing, convening, hosting and asking all the questions. And tonight I get to um, indulge the tables of turn for a little bit. Indeed. Well, it's very nice to be here. (laughs) And you're dialing in from just down the road tonight, actually. I am. I'm
0: in Edithwell. I think that should be on my bio. Justine lives in (laughs) Edithwell.
1: So absolutely local people, local stories, as we love here on Radio Karam. And I'll just read out the text line number for our listeners tonight. in case anyone has any questions, please send them through to Justine and I in the studio. The number is zero four nine three two one three eight three one. We'd love to hear from you and have you part of the conversation tonight as well. Justine is a wealth of knowledge and experience and I'm I'm sure there'll be many, many questions that come up for our listeners. So why architecture? Oh, I don't
0: know. <laughs> I don't know I think I was in high school and I was like oh I don't know what I'm gonna do and that you know typical thing of being good at art and good at science and someone says how about architecture um and then also I think I at some point I said to my mum oh maybe I should maybe I'll do interior design and this is no reflection on the interior designers out there who are wonderful talented people who do important work but my mum went why don't you be an architect you know like I think she had. She had wanted to study medicine, hadn't been able to, um, and so she was quite ambitious for me. Um, well, to do what I wanted to do, not not to sort of you know, scale some heights, but to so so yeah, she was very supportive of the idea. I kind of went along and stumbled into architecture and kind of quite liked it. So yeah, you know. in Auckland in those days, you had you did a first year called an intermediate year, which was the first year of university where you just did. Two arts, two sciences, and, and two something else's. Um, so you had a year at university before you got into architecture school. Um, and that, was, I think, was a really good thing, actually, because you got to sort of try out various things and stretch various things and, and build a wee bit more knowledge before you landed in architecture school. But, yeah, it's not I'm not one of those people who was playing with blocks since they were two, but, you know, here I am anyway. <laughs>
1: everybody has their unique journey into, into yeah. the profession did you ever work in conventional practice for a bit after that
0: yeah i did but i graduated in 1991 which anyone who's as old as me will know was deep recession it was deep recession in new zealand it was deep recession here um no one i know got a got a job in architecture for the year before me my year or the year after me so it's pretty um tough uh we had been educated with a very broad understanding of what architecture might be and then what kinds of ways you might get involved with it. And so I worked in the architecture library at the school for a while, so I learned a lot about cataloguing. Um, so people found things to do, and we were also very lucky that we weren't settled with huge student debt. So we could graduate into a recession. And we obviously had to be able to feed ourselves, but we weren't burdened with those massive debts that the students are now. So I think that made an enormous difference. And we had a very expansive idea about what, it, how we could use that knowledge. So I did, I did um, work. I've worked in a couple of times for for one one time for someone who actually became a very close friend. But I kind of kept finding other things that were very interesting just as I was in practice so I kind of kept stepping sideways but and I think I think that early experience of there being no work and that education which led me to think of a very wide range of ways of using that knowledge Um, yeah so I just kept finding other things so I thought when I moved to Australia I'd become a practitioner but Somehow I ended up at Architecture Australia instead.
1: I wanted to ask about the move to Australia. When did that happen? Uh,
0: 1999.
1: So quite a long time ago now, but, you know, yeah. And then pretty much straight into architectural media.
0: Um, I had a year. So Paul, my partner Paul and I were writing a book that um, wasn't finished when we left. So we came to Australia because he got a job at Melbourne University. Um, so I spent the first year finishing that book, um, then started looking around for a job, um, was applying to practices, um, saw that architecture media had a position, applied to that, uh, went back to New Zealand to launch the book, came back, got, got called into an interview. So, yeah, it was kind of... Um, I was very fortunate, really, where I, you know, it became apparent that I knew quite a lot about architecture, but I knew nothing about Australia and nothing about editing. So um, they took a punt on me and hired me anyway and um, taught me how to do those things. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lucky accident, that one. <laughs> what,
1: what would – what do you think Austra- Australians um, – what would you like Australians to know about New Zealand architecture? Um.
0: No. Hmm. I mean, I think. Look, I think. You, I think there's a lot of very good work. I think it's very. Um. I think. Yeah. But I do. I. I'm not. No, maybe this isn't the topic for red cam. I don't know. But I like particularly New Zealand scholarship. I like the way that that. Um, the ways of thinking about architectural history and theory in New Zealand, which is very much um based on you know kind of the position of the country at the end of the world right so and on being a bicultural country so new zealand australians think new zealand is just like australia but it's not and it's not because it has a treaty and it's not because it's very it's 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 overtly understands itself as a bicultural country so um thinking about what it is to to think about architecture, what it is to write architectural history when you are a small country at the end of the world and you have nothing that's in the architectural canon, for example. So there's this sort of, there's this interest in what it means to be on the edges, what it means to, you know, to look for gaps, to look for cracks, to look for the things that are missing. It's a it's never about reinforcing the canon. It's always about trying to think about what else there might be and how else we might think about things. And I don't think Australia has that same approach. So I really like, and I don't know if that translates into architectural practice or not. I've never really, I don't know, but I do really like the way that um, historians and theorists in New Zealand take that place, the location of that place very seriously as a way to think about what it is to make work there. Mm
1: so a real curiosity that's also connected to place
0: yeah but not place in some wooshy, mushy way It's sort of you know in a sort of what is in a way that's thinking about what it means to be um uh, what it what it what it means to be in that location in relation to the rest of the world as well so it's not just about it's not that sort of yeah, I'm not quite sure. I don't quite know how to explain. You might have to ask me another question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. I, I hear you. they, you know, it really is. People don't realise how far south New Zealand is yeah. and actually how yeah, far yeah. into the Pacific.
0: Yeah. And I think actually that's the other thing is I think you know, when you live in New Zealand, particularly in the North Island, you are part of the Pacific and you understand yourself as part of the Pacific. And, I, again, I don't, don't think that's something that I have – Experienced nearly so much in Australia, although a little bit in Brisbane. Um, And that's, I think, something – you know, I grew up in Auckland. That's something else I do miss is that sense of being part of the Pacific and sense of having Pacific cultures around you.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's very different.
1: Which Kiwi architects should I go home and Google tonight?
0: Oh, oh God. I'm not in terror with these sorts of questions. (laughs) There's a very nice book come out recently on John Scott who was a – uh, sort of post-war architect, Maori architect, um, really, really great work. There's a nice good book come out of him recently. Um, there's a lot of very good um, uh, post-war – well, I mean, I'm more inter- interested in post-war. There's a lot of good work, a lot of good houses, but it's not just houses um, – Uh, I'm just trying to think. There's another, there's a photographer called Mary Godan who um, has done a number of very good books on New Zealand architecture recently. I would suggest that you Google her and see what she's been digging up. Yeah, or our book.
1: (laughs) Or your book indeed. That'll that'll (laughs) keep both myself and the listeners busy, no doubt. There's a question I love to ask all my guests and that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place?
0: I have no idea. I can't answer that question. I really, <laughs> actually, don't know.
1: What was your last home like in Auckland before you left?
0: Uh, yeah. Look, I actually don't know what my first. I don't. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. What was? I mean, I, well, I lived in Auckland. I mean, I grew up in Auckland, but before I moved to Wellington. I lived in a couple of very, very good Art Deco flats in the city, which was very good. But I grew up in suburban Auckland, so yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Is that is that suburbia similar to how Australians will understand suburbia?
0: Oh, probably. It's wetter. <laughs> it's a lot greener. Colder. <laughs> and then no, it's i probably a bit colder. It's shaggier somehow. Auckland's shaggier because it gets a you know it's a wet, wet environment, and so it's, it's very shaggy. So I guess look, you know probably not an earliest memory of a space or a building, but some I think place I'm very, very fond of are the West Coast beaches in Auckland. The black sand, you know, flax, surf. Um tough, you know, for those people who are old enough to remember the piano, the film where the piano was filmed. So yeah, I think those those places are very important to me.
1: That's really wonderful. And and now you live here by the coast as well in Edith Vale. Yeah, it's
0: a very different kind of coast, but it's very nice to be near the water, I have to say. I I don't yeah, I don't enjoy those landlocked suburbs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm with you there also. Love love the ocean and the breeze and just living down here on on our yeah. long beach.
0: Yes. It was especially good during lockdown, I have to say, being able to go walking on the beach and having the wetlands in behind. I think it's um that sense of having edges on both sides is quite is, is very good,
1: I think. Mm. Yeah. So let's pivot back to when you moved to Australia. You okay. published the book, settled in, joined Architectural Media. What are some of your favourite moments when you're the editor of Architecture Australia magazine?
0: Um, I'm really bad at these kind of favourite favourite questions. Uh, what are my favourite moments? Things I'm quite proud of. I mean, I'm quite – look, there's a lot of – you know, it's a really great job because I basically got to – well, it was a little time before I started working in Architecture Australia. I started working in a company um, and there were various, various things happened that meant I ended up working on Architecture Australia, which was great. Um, and I got to um, – I just got to travel a huge amount to, to meet people and see things. And I had this really wonderful situations where if I met people on Friday afternoons – and they said, oh, why don't you, you know, let's go and have a drink or let's do this or let's, you know, stay around in the office. And I made, I, you know, made very close friends who, um, from those people in particular somehow. Um, so I'm very fortunate that I have very good friends and, and colleagues around Australia as a result of that job. Um, but it was just such a privilege to kind of see all that work and to talk to and have this constant conversations about architecture, which is really delightful and wonderful Um, but I also was very I suppose I was very proud of the things that I got into the magazine that were not the classic architecture magazine fodder so um, you know we did an issue on Aboriginal housing a very 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 long time ago but at the time when it was very hard to get that kind of work published in in magazines. That's quite a success yeah.
1: Yeah
0: so and often it was the sort of essays or the, the sort of stuff around the project features. The project features are great, but they're not um, – and, and the, you know a really great project review um, finds a way to talk through a building and open it up to the world. So it's not just saying whether it's good or bad, it's talking about its kind of place, place in the world and, and how it might help us. Think about things in new or different ways, um, or how we might think about the building in new or different ways. So, so I do. I love project reviews, but I was, I suppose, the the sort of other stuff you can squeeze in around the edges, which maybe is pushing pushing some boundaries a bit more, which is which are good things. Um, and you know, I had three small children while I was in that job, so I also have lots of memories of carrying babies around with me. So that was kind of a- what? You know, and sometimes they opened doors and sometimes they made it harder to get through the doors. But I think more often than not, they, uh, especially with some of the crankier Melbourne architects, they were sort of more pleasant to me when I had a small child in time. reasons unknown.
1: They soften anyway. them up in time for the for the conversation.
0: <laughs> but again, I just think like, it's really important to, um, I don't know, like it's like I wasn't going to stop doing that job because I had a kid. and. And I didn't have family here, and so to do the job, sometimes I needed to take the kids with me. And I think that does. Um, and of course, my partner looked after them a lot as well. So, but it does. I think it's important to sort of be have people visibly parenting as well as you know visibly doing their work. So mm,
1: yeah, that's a very very true point. I wonder <laughs> what other subversive themes you managed to um, sneak in there and oh, and make more commonplace in our industry's consciousness. I don't know. <laughs> because like it was it was certainly a process twelve years ago now. Like
0: yeah. I mean yeah. I mean i
1: yeah. It's a process before Parlour became such a household name. I I remember when I was a student there was moments where oh parlor I'm not I'm not part of them, I'd hear people say. As if um yeah. feminism was a dirty word, as if Karen. yeah but gender yeah, yeah, equity yeah. was a dirty word so the the growth that the organization has gone through and that our, our industry has gone through yeah to recognize parlor as a peak industry body yeah yeah it's yeah. been quite no, a transformation absolutely.
0: and you know i mean i think if, I, I think it's also very off you know there's this thing called late onset feminism right which is and i was like this myself you know i was young and i was like i i knew that people before me had fought hard for gender equity but i you know, I was surrounded by, you know, architecture school. I, it was probably 40-60, but it felt like 50-50. Um, we were doing well. We couldn't see any reason why we wouldn't continue to do well. Uh, we had fantastic lecturers who taught us a lot about feminism. They taught us a lot about women in architecture. But we didn't imagine that any of those challenges would actually impact our lives. And I think that's very, very common for young um, people who've done very, who, you know, who've done well and it's all gone well to just think it's something a bit old hat and I think what t- tends to happen is not everybody but eventually some you know things hit them in the face and they go oh that's what they were talking about so and we would love it that that didn't happen to people that they always feel like there's, there's no there's no reason to have to think about gender um, but of course we don't live in that world yet. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it's unusual for people to find their way towards something. And certainly when we launched, been about 10 years probably before there'd been, since there'd been, or maybe eight, since there'd been much public discussion about gender and architecture. And so um, uh, there was just this huge response of people going, oh, thank God, or I just thought, I thought it was just me. And so what happened? Because we started off talk, uh, with data, a whole lot of people could see it wasn't just their own personal failings or their own personal situation, but this was a systemic problem and they could locate themselves in that. And so um, that was very important. And I think also, you know, it was came out of a research project that Naomi Stead set up. Um, it had very a whole lot of very... Um, well-respected people involved, and I think that also really helped. We were just kind of – we couldn't just be put aside as, you know, some women whinging because we were all had already um, established ourselves in all sorts of different ways, and we had credibility and we had data and um, people would – you know, not everyone listened to us, but we had certainly enough traction to – to kick things off, so yeah, but it has been. I have no, I had no idea. We had no idea that eleven years later we'd be, you know, still going um, and doing what we're doing. So yeah,
1: and you can continue gathering amazing data and participating yeah. in really unique longitudinal longitudinal studies as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, data really important, um, but data itself is not enough. So I think you know we. We, we, we've we just released the Parlour Census report. It's 60 pages of data. It's really, really important. It provides one, you know, a kind of complex perspective, but we also need people's stories. We also need sort of practical solutions. We always try with Parlour to, if we point out a problem, to also suggest a way forward. So if we're going to complain about all-male panels, we have Mary's List, which is an online register of you know, all the fantastic women active in the built environment. If we go, So we try not to um, just point to problems without pointing a way forward. And we're also very small, you know, we're a small organisation. Um, we're very lucky to have funding, but we don't have huge amounts of money. So we have to find ways to be impactful, um, you know, in a kind of lean way. And so the other thing we really try to do is always put resources and skills and ideas into the hands of others so it's not just us trying to change the world it's us trying to you know um gather people together to change the world so
1: yeah and that's across all all the guest writing that's on your website and the other instagram takeovers yeah i wanted i wanted to ask was there is there one single breakthrough moment that you're able to identify when really took off and started having some traction you're like oh you know Honestly, this is the, gonna work
0: the first week we were just in shock <laughs> like it wasn't like we launched and we were just like oh my god <laughs> Like it was it's we were really in shock at the uh extent of the reception from day one like it was well maybe day two i don't know but it was very um fast I mean, the re- we had begun the research project the year earlier. So it wasn't, Parlour began as the website associated with the research project. So it wasn't, um, and you know, of course, you know, it was a research project funded through the Australian Research Council, through the universities. And, um, that in itself was a long process. So it wasn't that it had stuck. But when we launched in 2012, yeah, it was just, it was pretty instant, actually. I mean, it felt like it was, yeah. But I don't know if there's, I mean, been, I suppose there have been moments since then. I mean, remember going to Seattle years and years ago to the American Institute of Architects has this women's leadership summit. And that invited me to go and talk about parlour. So I was and I was sort of imagining that I was talking to an audience who didn't know about parlour at all. And I turned up to the sort of opening drinks, and all these people were like, oh my God, parlour, we love parlour. And I was like, oh. That's amazing. <laughs> I might have to change what I'm going to say because I was, just, you know, my talk, because I was assuming. I was talking to people who knew nothing about us. It turned out, the room was full of people who knew all about us. And that's, I mean, I think, you know, I think when we started, we when we started the research, we discovered very quickly that there had been a number of other excellent um, uh, reports into. Women in architecture and and all of them made really great recommendations and nothing happened out of any of them. And I think we often wonder why we managed to get that traction. And I think there's two reasons. Partly those reports were a lot of effort and so by the time people had finished them and handed them over to, mostly to the Institute, they were kind of exhausted by it. Um, But the other one was that we had the internet. We had social media and we had the internet and so people people found us very quickly we found other people very quickly we could build kind of connections and communities across geographies in a way that people who had been running organizations before us and there's many organizations before us but they were much more local because um because of that communication thing so it's made you know really it was it was a made an enormous difference having that way to communicate across all sorts of um, and people just found us. It was extraordinary. Uh, It's just a total fluke really. (laughs) Well it's not a total fluke because we put a huge amount of work in. We put a huge amount of work in. We took it very seriously um, but you don't know. You put put a lot of work in. You do your best but you don't know what will happen when something goes into the world and um, so we put it into the world and it was received very well and um, I think the other thing is that, that it began as a website one year into a three-year research project. So it also was about trying to cultivate conversations and, commun- and communities. And as I said, we knew things had happened in person. So we were trying to create a demand for change because we knew that a report alone would not do that. Um, so we're trying to build community and build demand. But we were also, um, you know, we were pulling information out of that, out of the, that sort of work that went back into the research, and we had new research that we were sharing, and so it was a much more integrative process, like and it, it sort of exchange, than many um, many projects where you know you do the research and you go now we're going to disseminate it. So we finished that and we'll set up a website. And I mean, also I was an editor without a magazine, so I kind of was a bit had itchy fingers. So I started um, you know commissioning people to do stuff. So yeah
1: and off it, and it flew
0: off it flew yes and I think Na- I mean your name know, Naomi Stead and I who you know Naomi is the person who set up that research project are both very opportunistic and so we both get a bit over excited about new ideas and shiny new things um and I think that's really been to Paula's advantage I think sometimes it's been to our disadvantage because there's too many things we're trying to do all at once and um we may not be strategic enough, but certainly we, um, that sense of, well, here's an opportunity, let's grab it and see what we can do with it, is very much part of Carla's DNA. So we've got a whole lot of things we want to do in our back pockets um, and whether we, uh, you know, we'll get to them when the time, when the, when an opportunity emerges. But, you know, even the pandemic, we'd never run an online event and then the pandemic hit and we, Naomi was like, well, we've got to do something Everyone's sitting at home feeling lonely. Um so we set up an event series, which is where I first met you, um, called Light at the End of the Tunnel, and we ran them weekly all through the pandemic. I don't know how we did that. It nearly killed me. Um, but, you know, they we hadn't been saying, oh, we need to run an, some online events, but we saw this sort of, it just felt like something that needed to happen. Monash got behind it to support it in the first year. Melbourne Uni in the second year. And, um, yeah.
1: That was an amazing series. It gave so many yeah. people a, a sense of connection and it was like Friday yeah. lunchtime church. Yeah. <laughs> church. <laughs> every everyone, every the secular architectural version. Yeah, everyone was yeah, just yeah. yeah. um, But I mean we, we
0: found that we met a whole lot of people through that. Um you but lots of other people too and, and people who came along regularly who um, you know so we just these faces on screens that we you know and someone said to me, I think a really good compliment i just felt like i'm sitting in my living room chatting to a friend and that's what we wanted to but we were also delivering serious content so there were serious discussions about serious content but mm-hmm. in a in a lovely informal informal way and, and when we set them up Naomi said to me she's like this has to be lo-fi because if we're going to do high production values, we won't be able to do it. And, and actually, it's just got to be meetings on Zoom, having a chat. And, and I think that's what worked. And so we, you know, we have very, very high editorial standards at Parlour. And, and my colleague Susie is an expert editor. I'm a pretty keen editor too. Uh, we don't publish things that aren't really well written. But it's so it's very interesting that balance between, between very, very high standards and, um, I think the light at the end term was also high standards but low production values, and I think it's that sort of um, high standards for the quality of the conversation.
1: Um, it worked fabulously. It, it works, works really well. So well. It's
0: like in our Instagram account. We hand it over every week um, to a different guest host. If people listening now want to guest host, it's open for next year. We just hand it over, and we there's um, and people do with it what they want, um, unless you know they get and a likely they get sued, in which case they step in. Um, But it's really nice to have, you know, on the one hand, a great deal of care with how you do things and on the other hand, opening things up and seeing where people take them. And I think it's that I really enjoy that balance. I also
1: really implore listeners to check out the Parlour website and have a look at the years and years of amazing writing particularly letters to my younger self if there's yes. any students yes. listening tonight any young young professionals yes. to tune in and glean somebody else's lessons as well there's, there's such yes, a well they're of knowledge. very
0: good and that's the nice thing too it's a very simple format you know what would you say to your younger self of course what we're asking people to is provide advice to those who come after them but that's the sort of um That's the model. And so because everyone has a different story, although the format is the same, the stories are very, very different. Um, And that's like the salons too. So we run these events where we um, ask two women at different career stages to just have a chat as if no one's listening, just like Alana and I are doing right now. Yeah, just like Um, I asked you. (laughs) In front of an audience, no brief, same, same. Um, But again, because – Everybody has different stories and there are different relationships between two speakers. Um, they just, they never run out of energy or steam because they're always, it's always a different conversation. It's always. Um, and certainly in architecture, and I suspect like many, many other disciplines, there's very little discussion of, you know, what it is to have a life in that profession. That's all about the output or the, you know, the building or the this or the that. And so uh, I think, a lot of what we do—the salons, the letters to my younger self—are really one of the few places where people get to talk. We get to talk about those, the sort of broader context of what it is to have a life in this profession. So, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Good models, and they're quite fun, even for people who aren't architects. I think the letters to my younger self—they
1: mm-hmm. are—they're they're very inspiring. Some of them, as well, very, very brave and motivating. And you'll have to write one. Uh, do, I call the other the other I
0: do I? I commission on the fly, so you can write. I'm commissioning you to write one right now,
1: <laughs> well, listeners. I'm very flattered because uh, you have to have. You have to get older. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I want to ask, what's one of your um favorite parlour memories from the last? Oh God, movie? I hate these questions. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite you can tell favorite. it's live radio listeners. I, I don't give my guests <laughs> question lists. We just have a chat. So.
0: I'm always bad at these favourite questions.
1: Um, meeting you, Alana. <laughs> no, come on.
0: <laughs> well, I think, I mean, look, I have had a few people over the years say to me, I was really sick of it. I was thinking about leaving architecture and then I found Paula and I've stayed. So that seems pretty special to me. Yes. But, um, and I think people say people who will say that they have they don't feel they have a place in other sort of professional contexts, but they feel they have a place in parlour. And again, I think that's that gives us lots of warm fuzzies. We're very yeah. happy about that. Um, um
1: yeah. I'm terrible. That's at those really, things. that's really, really special. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's to, pretty nice to yeah to know that your organisation was able to really stop someone from leaving or defecting from the profession. Well,
0: I look, and I think it's okay to leave. It's good. It's good to have people who are trained in architecture doing all sorts of things. It's good to have people and as cl- clients and government and all sorts of things. Great fantastic but if people are leaving because they feel unwelcome and pushed out that's a very very different situation than if they're leaving because they see an opportunity somewhere else so we're all for we're all for a very broad um expanded field of people working in all kinds of ways you know the years ago but but because they see opportunity not because they feel pushed out yeah I mean
1: Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say that we regularly discuss that on the on yeah. the show, the, the expanded field, and there's so many yeah. different ways that people participate in the architectural yeah. industry in parallel yeah. or in, in those tangents.
0: Yeah, well, and it's just using that education in all sorts of ways. I, a long time ago, I was talking to the. Um, Anti discrimination commissioner in Tasmania, and I started explaining something, and she went, no, "No, you don't need to explain that. I've got a degree in architecture." And I was like, "Oh, okay." Oh my god! Like, and I use that knowledge every day. So, you know, I use think that things about how people can be included and excluded that I learned through architecture every day. So, very interesting. Yeah, all sorts of. Everywhere you look, you'll find someone with half an architecture degree. <laughs>
1: You, you never know how people will surprise you. I find that actually strolling up and down here along our beach, along the Long Beach here. And, I meet mean, such interesting, wonderful people, many of which have already been booked in the, these first 21 weeks of the show. It's, it's week 21, by the way. Listeners, the show's an adult now. <laughs> thank, thank you for being with us all along. I, I want to ask, Justine, what advice do you have for architects, emerging architects who want to get into architectural writing and editorial work and journalism?
0: Um. Oh, look, I think just have a go. I mean, it's quite – I mean, people used to always ask me, you know, how did you become editor of Australia? Like, it was just a series of complete accidents. So it's there's, it, there's not enough jobs for there to be a career pathway. Like everyone I know who's been an editor has got – you know, it's through some – You know, it's sort of an an odd sequence of circumstances. Um, So I guess, I mean, but I think, you know, writing now there's many, many more options than print media. Um, And so I think partly it's it's about practising and it's about cultivating an audience and it's about um, um, thinking about that audience and how you communicate with them. And it's about um, having a go and then, I suppose, just... um, I mean, if I think about it, you know, it's great when you find a great, a really good writer. But also, don't just write archie speak. Don't just write the, you know, the, you know, kind of write in a way that's, you know, that's engaging and accessible mm-hmm. and understandable and talks about complicated, sophisticated ideas, but does not just kind of wallow in showing off how much you've read, which is, I think, one of them, you know, not very good. Um, but I think, I think, in terms of any sort of career, I, I just feel like. It's about noticing where there's opportunities. So when I applied for that job at Architecture Media, it was not working on Architecture Australia, but I knew they published Architecture Australia and it was working on, on publications that I actually really had not very much interest in. And I have to say I was starting to get a bit like, well, maybe this isn't for me. Um, when... A gap opened up in being an assistant on Architecture Australia, and so I was very, very fortunate that that gap opened up. And I worked very hard, and you know, I kind of, you know, I was lucky that I made something out of that, and that my my bosses saw something in me. Um, but I do feel like I think it's always just worth have, keeping your eye on what's to the side. And I think this might be the New Zealander in me, right? It's always worth not, you know, just watching, seeing what where there might be unusual opportunities because I think if you and look I know people advise career planning and knowing where you want to be in five years and all that stuff and I kind of can see the value in it I just have never done it myself and it makes me just cringe to even think about it but but I guess I think if you are doing that and that is one of the and there's lots of good advice that you should do that um just keeping an eye open to the side, just keeping an eye on where the other opportunities might be, just keeping an eye on something unexpected, just because you never quite know. And as you say, like, you know, walking on the beach, who you meet, who knows? I mean, I was, I found too when I had, when my kids went to school, I suddenly, you know, again, meeting all, all these people who were, you know, doing interesting things and I hadn't really registered to what extent the suburbs are a workplace. The suburbs are full of people running small businesses out of their homes and that really interests me too because we tend to imagine that if you work work happens in the you know in the city or in kind of major commercial centres or in the industrial bit or whatever but actually it happens all through the suburbs it happens and um you know I remember you know the woman two doors down from me as a print broker but i only worked that out years after we moved here um, I needed a printer and luckily I had a print broker just down the road. <laughs> um yeah, it really fascinates me that sort of
1: <coughs> sorry, sense of <coughs> that perfect that perfect serendipity moment. Mm. Of, you you never know. But also
0: there are you know, there is there's a lot going on and it's often really hidden. And I think that was one of the nice things about the pandemic, although, you know, not that it was nice, but <coughs> that sense of a very active neighbourhood you
1: and know and that all that all that <coughs> growth and opportunity of what the suburbs do offer you as as well and and what's possible i I really value that advice I think I think a lot of listeners tonight and we've had conversations with other architectural writers, particularly Naomi Bobti on the on the show and um she also talked about how finding that pathway through Ooh. the expand, ex- expanded field or even Ooh. even if you do it on the side and you're still in conventional practice isn't isn't Ooh. something that, that people see. Well,
0: there's enormous amounts of need for good writing in conventional practice and there's a lot of conventional practitioners who are terrible at it. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for good writing and, you know, so you can kind of hone some skills in practice, I'd say, as well, I think. Um, but, yeah,
1: yeah. What's your biggest piece of advice for young architects who are in conventional practice and really see that as their pathway forward? Practice? Yeah. Um, I think my advice to everybody is enjoy what you
0: do. <laughs> you're, not enjoy- you're not enjoying it. Um, I don't think you always have to enjoy everything. I think sometimes, you know, it's you're there because you want certain kinds of experience or you can gain certain sorts of knowledge. Um, but I think if you're miserable, I think it's definitely good to try and think about what else there might be out there because um, I don't think you do your best work when you're not happy. Um, and again, that's not some sort of you know, sort of new age happy, I don't know. It's just I think um, yeah, enjoying what you do, I think is quite important.
1: It's, yeah, it's the truth. It's not. It's not hippy dippy yeah. woo woo. It's, it's definitely yeah. the the truth. It's,
0: it's enjoying what you do, and and or and it might be because it's really challenging. It might, enjoying what you do is not just because you've got an easy job. It's because it's. In fact, I think we've got an easy job. It's a bit tedious, but um, enjoying what you do and finding up. Op- I think the other thing is perhaps finding opportunities in what you do. So if you are in a role where, you know, I suppose the in my day we'd talk about. The most tedious thing was drawing endless reflected ceiling plans or door schedules or something. Like, find some thing in that that's interesting and that you can learn from. Or I don't know. It's oh, yeah. But again, I think it's always the same. Just look for the opportunities. Look for the. Um, and I think I think the other thing is often said to young women, which I think is really important, is let people know what you're interested in. Let people know what your ambitions are. Let people know that, for example, you are a total nerd about procurement, Alana. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. you have let me all know. Um, because people can't, you know, people can't open doors for you or make suggestions or put you forward for things if they don't know what you're interested in. And I think the, um, I think that's really important. Often, you know, there's also that thing where, you know, women, women in particular are often told, You know, you have to kind of, you have to let people know what you're doing because just sitting in the corner working hard is, you know, is not enough and you don't want everyone, you know, running around boasting and bragging, but you do want to just, you know, make own the work that you do. Um, But I think letting people, letting people know where you want to go and what your ambitions are, not that you have to meet, you know, be there straight away, but that, um, just helps. Yeah, no one can open the door for you if they don't know that you're interested in that door being opened.
1: I think that's really, really good universal advice to all our listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah. no matter what yeah. profession or yeah. field they're exactly. in. Exactly. I don't, I don't
0: think any of this is really specific. Um, I mean, I guess the piece of advice that's given to young architects constantly and on which I would fully agree with is to get on site as much as you can. Um, that That's a really important place to... Um, to learn a whole lot of stuff Mm. and it's quite, and it can be quite hard sometimes as a young architect to if you're in a practice that doesn't actively um, take people onto site, so I think that's so again, I think if that's not possible or the practice you're working doesn't do work, isn't doing work, that means you can be on site then find other ways to get some site experience
1: Definitely, I'd also add to that get registered as Quick and as 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 quick as you're ready, as early as possible. Yeah. Once, once you're ready, don't delay. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For yeah. all those grads out there listening. Yeah. Where do you think the future of the profession is headed? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> you have the best reactions, Justine. <laughs> oh
0: dear! <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have to say I'm alarmed that in a profession that feels a wee bit under threat um, and reasonably so because I think um, procurement processes are pretty rubbish, many of them, um, I don't think circling the wagons is the best approach. I think, you know, I have asked that very same question about the future of architecture to many people over the years and the most interesting answers have always been the people um, who have spent some time outside of conventional practice or on the edges or, uh, you know, and I just feel, I feel like I can be a much more expansive Um, There are many more ways to use that knowledge and training in an expanded way, as we talked about before, that I think are really, really valuable, and I would like to see that as being understood as part of the future of the profession, not as something you do when you leave the profession. So being a, you know, registration is all about consumer protection and that's very important. We don't want buildings falling down, absolutely. But there are many, many ways to use that knowledge that are very meaningful, that impact the built environment very positively, that make, help improve the lives of many people, um, which aren't just about that. And I would like to see all of those roles as being understood as, I think that I would understand them as part of the discipline, but I think they should be understood as part of the profession as well. And I think the profession would be much stronger if it was more inclusive of the broader mix of people who use their architectural knowledge and skills every day. So I would like to see a much stronger, a much more inclusive profession. I think would be much, much stronger in a
1: positive way. Yeah. 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 Paula always talks about that. A lot of the issues that you identify in your both qualitative and quantitative data is systemic and it is structural. Yeah. So I wonder what are some of the key policies or strategies that you think if if you could pick one real major one, what is something that we could do from a policy Um, strategy perspective to really affect change?
0: Well, I do think there's been a massive, in terms of workplace stuff, there's been a massive shift, you know, thank you, pandemic, in relation to flexible work and part-time work. I think those are really fundamental. They're particularly fundamental for including women. But it's also really, really, really important that men who have children, for example, take parental leave. Like, you know, women are not the only people who have children. Um, So um, I would... I think those policies are very important, and I think those policies being used by everybody is really important. Um, I think um, policy, there's increasing amount of you know stuff work around well being, um, and I think one thing I would really like to see is um, you know governments being good clients, governments having procurement processes and contracts and agreements which are not which are you know enable really good work to be done and that doesn't need to be more expensive and it doesn't need to take longer necessarily but it does need to be better run and i do think that um you know on the one hand we have um you know uh, victoria has the build and equality policy which is all about trying to get more women into construction excellent great on the other hand are running projects which are driving people out of the industry so you know um, and I've said that to them so I think I can say that publicly um, so I would really like to see some um, uh, policies uh, I don't know if it's policies but understanding of the way that the way that you procure work the way that you um, projects the way that you fund them the way the where you put the money that you know money invested up front, can result in a lot of savings in the long term. Um, But they're just trying to whack things through in a short amount of time and cutting costs. Because it looks good in the short term on paper, you know, really increase the long-term costs. It reduces the states, you know, the potential for really sustainable outcomes. So I'd like a much, I'd like a, you know, better understanding of that, and I'd like architects to be able to articulate that better as well. I like architects to say no more
1: often. So many architects, yeah, like you said, dance around that card because their their client relationships are tied to it. But if we don't advocate yep. for each yep. other and ourselves and once Yeah, I mean hey, I
0: mean you know uh, this is, may not be the forum but there's a, a lot of times when you talk about architecture with access they all end up going oh no one understands us no one cares about us no one really understands what we do and how important what we are blah 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 um and honestly if access don't value themselves no one else is going to
1: value them exactly. Or so, that pity party and archie speak pity party. It's all banned yeah, on this yeah, program yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for then, that exact you know, reason.
0: And, and valuing yourself means, you know, charging proper fees. It means, you know, not exploiting your staff. It means
1: um, negotiating you know, fair contracts. It means
0: saying no. That's actually not achievable in that time frame. Or if we achieve it in that time frame, it will not be. You know, it's it's because it's not. It's valuing the output. It's valuing the buildings and places that are made and the contribution they're going to make to the community in the long term too. It's not just, you know, when it's especially public buildings. I just think we need really good public buildings and particularly good small-scale public buildings in the suburbs that support community life. Absolutely. And the public completely
1: deserves it with their hard-earned Absolutely. tax dollar.
0: Absolutely, and the public's not—you know—people aren't stupid. They can work out when something's being put together. You know, is, is put together well with care and makes opp- makes spaces an opportunity for them. It, it's, it, yeah. I mean, remember when um, the Seaford Life Saving Club went up, which is a building I really love, um, speaking to someone at the Francistown City Council, um, who said from his perspective, one of the best things was it just. Increased expectations for the whole community of what 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 public buildings and spaces could and should be like. That, that that people were coming along to community consultation meetings, going, "Well, can't we have? Why can't we have something like that?" And and I think "Why not? Indeed, I, it's a it's a very fine building, and but it would be great if there were lots of very fine buildings, you know." Yeah.
1: And where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. It, it's yeah. all—it's all possible. There's no yeah. shortage of skills and talent and ideas in no. this country. We—we yeah. we just need it yeah, yeah, yeah. to come together in a way that's going to be best used for the yeah. best use for the public dollar. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. all much poorer for it. otherwise. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 indeed. Well, it's a good tip. The Seaford <laughs> Life Saving Club—I'll have to put oh, on the, the program. Club is
0: fantastic! You should have Robert and come and talk about it. It's Such a great building.
1: That something for the program for 2024, maybe listen yeah. to something for perhaps the summer can, special. Perhaps you
0: can um, broadcast from
1: there. Radio Karam does have remote broadcast van and uh, all sorts of equipment, so it, it's all absolutely possible. Yes,
0: I've always wanted to run a power event down there, but I've never done
1: it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it, Justine. <laughs> Look, I, I want to ask, what gives you hope? What gives me hope?
0: Oh. Um, this was perhaps a little cliche, but I think uh, quite I really enjoyed watching my teenage daughters kind of flourish and you know do interesting things. And my sixteen year old said to me the other day, I was saying was talking about something, I was oh don't, I you was know, struggling with something, and she went, Mum, you don't have to understand. You just have to respect what people want, people's decisions, and you have to respect that that's what they want. And I thought that was very true. And I felt like I had done some good parenting if she came up with that. Um, and I think they, you know, I am very impressed with um, that that those young people and their kind of social awareness and political commitment and, so yeah, it's been hard to have hope after that appalling referendum, is not it? Where do where do we go to find hope after that? It's quite
1: hard to know. Well, the kids, you know, the kids of yeah. the future. That's a very yeah. astute comment from sixteen. But
0: you know, there's lots of great people doing interesting things. That's kind of fun, and you know, it's, the world is full of interesting people doing interesting things. You just, like, yeah, I think we have to support each other to do them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well I think that's a wonderful note to wrap up. On. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight, Justine.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm sorry if I waffled I, you know if you might be able to tell from my coughing arm a bit sick.
1: Thanks for joining me for another evening of radio architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium Studio on Bonnerong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care.
0: Hi, I'm Disco Dave from London, England, and whenever I'm in Australia, and in fact, even when I'm not online, I'll listen to Radio Caram.